Over the summer months, we're going to be working our way through the book of Hebrews, one chapter a week. So this is week one of 13. We just want to start with some basic introductory questions relating to the book of Hebrews that I think will help us this morning and over the next couple of weeks. The first is the question of who. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? And I put a quote on your notes, and this is going to be my answer for who wrote the book of Hebrews. Who wrote this epistle is known to God alone. We don't know who wrote this book. It's anonymous. There's nothing in the text where somebody just outs themselves and says, this is the one writing this particular letter. The fact that it's anonymous hasn't stopped people from speculating and guessing. And so I'll just put on the screen some of the leading candidates for who wrote the book. Paul, Barnabas, Luke. Luke gets an asterisk because some people think Luke wrote it. Some people think someone else wrote it and Luke translated it into Greek. So he gets double credit on the guesses here. Clement, Apollos, Philip, Peter, Priscilla, Silas, Epaphras, and Jude. You can pick, okay? You can just pick one of those. Some people feel very strongly about one or the other, and there's different arguments back and forth. The book is anonymous. If we needed to know, it would be clear in the Scriptures. The main things, the important things, are always clear in the Scriptures. That's the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. The main things are plain for us to understand. So we don't know, and we're just going to say the book is anonymous. Next question, to whom was it written? Who was it addressed to? And the best thing I can tell you is this. The oldest manuscripts of this book contain a title outside of the text, above the text, and the title says, To the Hebrews. Not every book in the Bible actually has a title like this, and we're not even entirely sure if the title was written by the author originally. It could have been added at some other point. What we know is that the oldest copies of this book that we have have the title at the top, To the Hebrews, and that fits with what we read in this book. It's written to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, and it's written to these people who have come to trust in Jesus as the Messiah in large part to say to them, here's what you do with your Old Testament, right? Now that the Messiah has come, what in the world am I supposed to do with Genesis through Malachi, with the Old Testament? In the book of Hebrews, it doesn't answer all the questions that we might have, but it answers a lot of questions saying, this is how you now, as a Jewish Christian, look back and think about the Scriptures, Genesis through Malachi. And I just want to add, even though it's written to Hebrew Christians, it's very, very helpful for Gentile Christians. Looking around the room, most of us fall into that category, non-Jewish followers of Jesus, because we come in sort of as outsiders. We're grafted into Abraham's family, and we look at this book, the three-fourths on the left side, the Old Testament, and we say, well, what do we do with that? What are we supposed to do with Genesis through Malachi. Is that my story? Is it not my story? Is that for Jews? Is that for Gentiles? And the book of Hebrews, as we work through it, is going to help us sort that same question out. I want to say something. This is on your notes. We're going to talk about this almost every week, okay? The book of Hebrews has an incredible amount of doctrine and theology crammed into this book. I mean, it's absolutely mind-boggling how much deep doctrine theology is crammed into this book. But it's not just an egghead book. It's not just for theological debates. At the most basic level, it's very, very practical. 
is a very practical book. And we're going to come back to this idea almost every week. Negatively, Hebrews was, was written to warn Christians about the danger of following, falling away. In other words, don't fall away. Right? Warning. Pay attention. Be aware. Do not fall away from the faith. That's sort of the negative warning in, in the book. The positive warning is the counterpart, and the positive warning is really an encouragement to persevere in the faith. Right? That's most basically why the book was written. It's not just to answer theological talking points, issues of debate, points of controversy. It's really written to you and I to say, don't fall away. Do not quit following Jesus. Keep following Jesus. Stay with it. Keep trusting in the gospel. Follow Jesus today. Follow him tomorrow. Follow him the next day. Follow him forever. It's very, very practical. Now, when I say to you that there's a warning about falling away, some of you good Baptists start to think, wait a minute. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How did this book sneak in the Bible? Falling away. What do you mean? What about once saved, always saved, and the security of the believer? And I'm just going to say to you, we're going to get to that. When we get to Hebrews 6, we're going to have to get in the mud and wrestle with it and talk about it and come to some sort of conclusion. So we just hang on to that. I just need you to see the big idea of the book as a whole is saying, don't stop following Jesus. Don't fall away from what you're doing. Hang in there, trust in Jesus, follow Jesus, okay? That brings us to the big idea. Here's the big idea of Hebrews 1. Jesus Christ is the anointed prophet, priest, and king. We're going to come back to each of these ideas as we work through the book, but they're all three in Hebrews 1. Jesus Christ is the anointed prophet, priest, and king. And I just want to explain a few terms to you. I'll put this next slide on. You'll, you'll be able to fill in the blanks. Christ comes from a Greek word, Christos. It's the Greek translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah. They mean the same thing. It's just a different language, translation of the same word. Both of them literally mean anointed one. So the Christ is the Messiah, is the anointed one. And when you read through the Old Testament scriptures, there are three people who historically were anointed for their service. Those three people or three offices are the prophet, the priest, and the king. So when we say Jesus Christ, it's the same as saying Jesus the Messiah. It's the same as saying Jesus the anointed one. And wrapped up in that title, it's not just his last name. Wrapped up in that title is the ideas, all of these ideas, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is the prophet, he's the priest, and he's the king. Now, you and I are so used to talking about Jesus Christ, we're used to talking about the Messiah, we just throw those terms around. But you need to understand biblically, when you read one of those words, all of that theology is wrapped up in that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. So that's the big idea. Let's read the text, and then we're going to pray. We're just going to read the entire chapter, and you can follow along as I read it. Word of God, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the exact radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes angels, winds, and ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth. In the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's the word of God, Hebrews 1. Let's pray together. Father, we've read about Jesus. And this morning we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on him. We know him from this book as the author and the perfecter of our faith. We see him in chapter 1 as the prophet and the priest and the king, we see remarkable truth about who Jesus is. And our prayer this morning is that you would press it home to our hearts. Father, that you would give us minds to understand. Father, help us to see how practical this passage actually is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've told you guys before, one of the things I love in life is sports radio, sports talk radio. I love that. My kids don't like it. My wife definitely doesn't like it. When we get in my vehicle, it comes on, and they immediately say, oh, put a song on, put some music on. But I love listening to sports radio, and I've got all my favorite guys I listen to throughout the day, so when I'm driving to work in the morning, it's Clay Travis, and then if I go to lunch and I'm driving in the car, it's Colin Cowherd, which is my favorite. I like listening to the herd. And then later in the afternoon, if I'm driving home, it's the straight out of Vegas guys, R.J. Bell, and they're talking about numbers and stuff. I don't have any idea what they're talking about, but I love listening to it. And then later in the evening, it's the odd couple, and these guys debate basketball and different things. And I love listening to these guys. I love listening to them debate and argue. Even though my family rolls their eyes, I love the debates. And one of the debates that has been on all these shows recently is, who is the greatest NBA player of all time? Some of you have very strong feelings about this, and some of you are very wrong about this, but that's okay. <clears throat> They've been debating, and here's why they're debating, because LeBron James, whatever you think about LeBron James, he'd been gaining a little bit of momentum as sort of maybe he is the greatest. And then he went to L.A., and it did not go very well this year in L.A. They didn't make the playoffs, and he got injured, and the team was very dysfunctional, and everybody sort of looked at that and said, eh, I, I don't know. Me and Josiah have a, a little running friendly bet, lunch bet, and the bet is lunch. And Josiah's team, I can't remember, who's your team? Do you, Portland Tramble it? 
trailblazers? Is that who you have? Oh, Josiah has the warriors. Somehow Josiah got the warriors in this bet. And I've ended up, I originally had the Cavaliers. Now I have uh, L.A. And I have been on the losing end of this bet for most years. But he just had this disastrous season. And so everybody's sort of rehashing the debate saying, maybe he's not as good as we thought he was. And maybe Michael Jordan really is the greatest. Or maybe Kobe Bryant's the greatest. Or maybe Magic or one of these guys from the the era before Jordan. Maybe one of those guys really is the greatest. Or maybe you want to be old school and say, no, it's Wilt Chamberlain. All right, it's, it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Those guys were unstoppable. They would dominate these young guys today. We have this argument, who is the greatest? And we like to debate things like this. We've been debating it with golf again recently, right? Tiger Woods had sort of faded out. He wins a Masters, and we all say, oh, look, he's back. Here, Tiger's back. And we have it with football. Every year the Patriots win the World Series. We say, Tom Brady, he's the greatest. Nobody's better than Tom Brady. Uh, all these debates back and forth. We have it about our politicians. Right? Who's the greatest president of all time? And you know these lists. You see them online from time to time. It sort of depends on who's coming up with the list. You know all the usual names that make the list, but usually there's sort of two lists. And one list has a bunch of these guys on it, and this list has a bunch of these guys on it. And we debate this kind of stuff. Guess what? That's not just American. That's human to have those sort of debates. And the Jewish people used to have those sort of debates. Right? The Jewish people used to sort of get together and they used to say, who's the greatest from our history? Who's the number one, the greatest of all time? Who is the goat from Jewish history? Who's the greatest? And you had one camp of people that would sort of chime into that debate and say, it's got to be Abraham. Got to be, right? Jews had this idea that the further back you were in the timeline, the greater you were. And so some people said, there's really no debate. It's Abraham. He's the fountainhead of the Jewish people. That's the guy that God used to start our whole nation. Clearly, it's Abraham. You had other people pipe up. We talked about this recently in the Gospel of John. And other people said, it's Moses. Moses gave us the law. Moses led us out of slavery in Egypt. Moses established us as a nation. They were just a family before Moses. Moses is the greatest. He was our judge. And you had other people that said, you know, Abraham's great. Moses is okay. But it's got to be King David, right? I mean, that was the pinnacle. That was the highest point of the nation. And Solomon took it, and from there it kind of went downhill. But surely David would be recognized as the greatest. And so this debate rages on. And the book of Hebrews jumps into that debate. And the book of Hebrews does not say it's Abraham. And the book of Hebrews does not say that it was Moses. And the book of Hebrews does not say that it was David. The book of Hebrews wades into this little friendly debate and says, the greatest of all time is a carpenter from Nazareth. Number one. And the whole book is written to sort of highlight Just how great Jesus is. And because he's so great, the book is saying to you, don't turn away from Jesus. Keep trusting in Jesus and keep following Jesus. Why? Because he's greater than all these other guys. And the book of Hebrews is going to prop some of these people up in sort of debate fashion and just knock them down 
one right after the other. And Hebrews 1 starts with what we just read as an avalanche of information, right? The whole first chapter, all about Jesus, talking about who he is, what he's done, how great he is. And I was originally going to make you fill in blanks on all nine of those bullet points. I had them in there and I thought, you know what? It's summer and I love these people and I'm not going to make them do it. I'm going to fill in all the answers for them and I'm not going to make them race through it. But here's what I want you to do. We're going to walk through them, and I want you to look in your Bible, and I just want to walk through the text itself, and I want you to see what the book of Hebrews says about Jesus. What is it that we believe about Jesus? First of all, he's the revelation of God. Verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God has spoken through the prophets. Verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us. By his son. God has spoken to us through Jesus. And verse 3 says, he is the exact imprint of God. We just saw this in John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He is the full, final revelation of God. Secondly, he's the creator. Verse 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and get this, through whom also he created the world. Now look, there's some stuff later in chapter 1 that talks about Jesus as the firstborn and as the begotten, and sometimes Christians get tripped up on that. I just need you to understand, Hebrews 1 is very clear, it's not contradicting itself, Jesus is the creator. We saw that in John 1, right? The word created everything that exists, and nothing came into existence apart from him. And I just want to do a a simple thought exercise with you to help you understand what it means that Jesus is the creator. In all that exists in the whole universe, there are two categories of things. There are uncreated things, and there are created things. Everything in the universe falls into one of those buckets. Either it was not created, or it was created. And the book of Hebrews is saying to you, Jesus belongs in the uncreated bucket because everything else in the created bucket, he created. He made all things. There's a Bible scholar named Donald Guthrie who explains it like this. I think it's helpful. The Christians were convinced that the same person who had lived among men was the one who created men. Jesus is the creator, the full and the final revelation of God, the one who spoke everything into existence in the beginning, and, number three, the sustainer of all of those things that he made. Look at verse three. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. The planets in their orbit all the way down to the tiniest of atoms and the particles that make up those atoms, all held together ultimately, not just by abstract laws of science, but held together by the Creator. He sustains all of it. Fourthly, He's the Savior. The Savior. Verse 3 says, After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Doesn't detail here how he made purification for sins. That comes later in the book, but it's saying to you, this Jesus 
This one who's greater than Abraham and Moses and David and all of them put together. He made true and final purification for our sins. He's the Savior. Fifth, he's greater than the angels. We read all these quotes. In your Bible, you see that the the setting of the type changes. And there's quotation marks. And maybe you have some footnotes and you can go back and look at these verses. But the author of Hebrews throws out all of these Old Testament quotations all to prove Jesus is greater than the angels. He's greater than these spiritual beings that we look up to and we say they're so strong, they're so mighty, they're so powerful. They were all created by Jesus. They were created for Jesus. He's greater than all of them. Sixth, he's worthy of worship. Look at verse 6. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. The angelic realm was created and commanded to worship Jesus just like you and I were created and are commanded to worship Jesus. He's worthy of our worship. Seventh, he's the sovereign ruler. Verse 8, he has a throne and a scepter. He is king over all that exists. Right? It described he made purification for sin and then he sat down on his throne. And he's ruling and he's reigning on that throne and he has a scepter as this symbol of his power. Eight, he is perfectly righteous. Verse nine, you've loved righteousness. In all that he does, he's always right. He never does anything that is wicked, immoral, or wrong. He is always, always righteous. And ninth, he's eternal. 10 and 11 and 12 talk about he laid the foundation of the earth and the earth is going to perish. Jesus is going to remain. He says the, the earth, the creation, the heavens and the earth are going to wear out like a garment. They're going to be rolled up and changed out. But Jesus is the same and his years have no end. He is eternal. Like That's a lot to take in, right? That's sort of like the fire hydrant hitting you right in the face. All of these truths. And we could just take them one at a time and we could spend a month on each one. Working through, what does it mean? What are the implications? I just want you to feel the weight of all of them together as you look at that list and you say, this is who the book of Hebrews presents Jesus as. The revelation of God, the creator, the sustainer, the savior, greater than the angels, worthy of worship, the sovereign ruler, perfectly righteous and eternal. It's all saying to you, Jesus is great and Jesus is glorious. And you've got to start with this idea that the whole book of Hebrews focuses on who Jesus is. Charles Spurgeon said it like this in the late 1800s. He was preaching a Sunday night service. And he stood up and he was, his text was Hebrews 1. In the opening line of his sermon, Hebrews 1, Sunday night, London, I have nothing to do tonight but to preach Jesus Christ. That's it. That's what this text is about. It's all about Jesus, and you've got to see how great he is, and you've got to see how glorious he is. And you take all of that in. You you feel the weight of all of that doctrine. And I think it just makes us stop and ask a couple of questions. Question one, is that the Jesus we believe in? Yes or no? I sure hope it is. But you understand that there are a lot of people in the Bible Belt who talk about Jesus who maybe even say, I've invited Jesus into my heart. Who maybe even say, you know, I was baptized and I'm a follower of Jesus. Who don't believe those things about Jesus. 
Right? They can say Jesus. They can pronounce the letters. But this is not the Jesus that they believe in. He's not the Jesus that they talk about. Sometimes I, I interact with people who say, you know, all the, all the doctrine is just divisive and separates us from each other. Can't we just get past all the doctrinal brouhaha and just, can't we just follow Jesus? Great. Let's follow Jesus. Which one? The book of Hebrews is telling you this one. And if the Jesus in your mind and your heart doesn't line up with what we just talked about in Hebrews 1, you haven't taken your hands and physically made an idol, but you are following an idol that you've made in your mind and your heart. This is who Jesus is. And it's just worth stopping to ask ourselves, is this the one that we worship? Is this the one that we follow? Is this the one that we are praying to? Is this the one that we trust in? Because this is who he is. The second question is, how does this help us? How does this help us? To go back to, to what we said earlier, how does Hebrews 1 warn us about the danger of falling away? And how does Hebrews 1 encourage us to persevere in the faith? We know all this stuff about Jesus. How does it help us do what Hebrews is calling us to do? Don't quit. Don't stop following Jesus. And hang in there. Endure. Persevere as a disciple. I just put the two verses up on the screen that I... I referenced earlier, Hebrews 2 verse 1 says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And I just want you to note that that word therefore comes at the beginning of chapter 2 verse 1, and it's pointing you to everything we just read in Hebrews chapter 1, right? You see that word therefore, and you say, wait a minute, I got to back up i got to know what came before it if I'm going to understand what this means. Hebrews 2.1 says, you need to pay attention. To what? To who Jesus is. Why? So that you don't fall away. So that you don't fall away from it. Hebrews 13, at the end of the book, it's sort of like a bookend. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. Right, This word of encouragement, this word of don't quit, hang in there and keep following Jesus. That's what the entire book really is. Don't fall away, keep following Jesus. How does Hebrews 1 help us in that? I want you to see three thoughts. And we're going to come back to this idea that Jesus is the prophet, the priest, and the king. Okay, Number one, the Bible is a story about the holy God acting in history to save sinful people through Jesus. What do I do with the Old Testament? And how do I take the New Testament and mash it together? Jesus has come. What do I do with these two books? The book of Hebrews is telling us right here, this whole book is a story about God acting to save people from their sins through Jesus. Did you see what he said in verse 3? Somebody made purification for sins. If you pay attention to the story, that's the job of the priest, specifically the high priest, to make sacrifice and purification for sins. And the book of Hebrews is telling you all that stuff you've been reading about has now been fulfilled in Jesus. He is the great high priest. He's the one who made purification for sins. Don't miss the fact that this book is about Jesus. You need to get that. If you're going to not fall away and you're going to keep following him, you have to know this is a story. This book is a story about what God has done to save sinful people through Jesus. Let me explain to you the danger involved here. How many of you have had the experience on a Christmas morning 
with your kids opening Christmas presents, and you as the parent or the grandparent have shopped long and hard for the perfect gift, you know your kid's going to love it. And you're gathered around and you're taking pictures and you're almost as excited as your kid is. And they rip it open and they tear the paper and they rip the box open and they look at it and they say thank you, they love it. And then they throw it aside and pick up the box and the paper and the tape and the bow. And then put the bow on their head and they laugh about it and they make clothes or a tie or a belt out of the ribbon and the box becomes a castle. And as a parent or a grandparent, you sit back and you just say, what did I just spend my money on? What is happening right now? I could have just given you a box. I could have given you a whole roll of wrapping paper. I could have given you a whole box of bows if that's what you wanted to play with. Right? Kids do this. They miss the real present and they play with the other stuff. Can I just tell you, sometimes we do that with this book. Sometimes we miss the real present in it, and we give all our attention to rules. And we approach this book as if it's just a bunch of rules. Do this, don't do that. Can I tell you something? The rules are like the wrapping paper. They're not unimportant. They're important. You need to understand them. You need to think through them. But they're not the present. The rules are pointing you forward to the real present. They're helping you see Jesus as the real present. You look at these rules and you say, wait a minute. I haven't kept those rules. I'm a sinner. And the rules are intended to do that in your life, to show you your sin, to show you like a mirror just how wicked you are. And you look at those rules and you end up saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. These rules can't be it. There's got to be someone else. And the someone else is Jesus. Sometimes we approach this book as a whole sort of like, a book of heroes, just a bunch of great people. I want to be like this guy. I want to be like that girl. In my Sunday school class this morning, we were talking about Hannah, and we say, Hannah, Hannah was so great. I want to be like Hannah. Hannah did this. I should do this. And we approach it as if it's just a bunch of really good people, and we should try to be like them. There's a problem with that. There's not a whole lot of good people in this story. There's not a whole lot of people you actually want to be like in this story. And the people in this story are not in the story so that you say, look how great Hannah is, look how great Samuel is, look how great Abraham or Moses or David is. All these people are in here to show you Abraham was not the person that Israel needed. Moses was not the leader that they needed. David was not the king that they needed. They needed Jesus. And all of these little stories point you forward to Jesus. And when the book of Hebrews talks about Jesus as the high priest, this one who made purification for sins. It's taking the old and it's tying it to the new and it's saying this is one story. Don't miss Jesus for all the rules. Don't miss Jesus for all the other characters here. Understand that this is one story about what God, the holy God, has done to save sinful people. That's going to help you not fall away. That's going to help you endure as a follower of Jesus. Because if you think at the end it's up to you to keep the rules and be like the heroes, you're going to be constantly frustrated. That's not what this book is for. This book is not written to tell you how to be good enough to go to heaven. This book is not written to tell you how to be a great hero in the line of all these Old Testament characters. This book is written to say to you, this is what God has done to save you from yourself. Believe it. 
Hang on to it and do not fall away from it. So number one, Jesus as our priest, he's acted to save us from our sins. Secondly, the fact that God has spoken to us means we have a true, it's true, and it's authoritative message. We have something that's true. We have something with authority. And this, of course, is rooted in the idea that Jesus is our prophet. Verse 1, long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Looking back to the Old Testament, how did God speak to us? Well, long ago, many different ways through the prophets. But in these last days, not speaking to us through a, a feeling in our gut. He's not speaking to us in some sort of crazy mystical way. He has spoken to us. Once and for all, he has spoken to us through his son, through Jesus. I just want you to stop and think about how remarkable that is. We say it in church. We might sing about it. You talk about it in a Sunday school class. The same one who spoke the stars and the galaxies into existence, who created everything, has stooped down to say something to us. He's spoken to us. We ought to listen to it. Right? The one who created everything, it's as if he's gotten down on one knee, like a parent or a grandparent with a child, and gotten down on eye level where we can understand it, and controlled the power of his voice so that we're not just blown away entirely. And he's spoken to us. He's spoken to us through Jesus. It's true, the things that you read in this book about Jesus. The things that we're commanded to do and called to do and who we're called to be and what Jesus requires of us in this book, it's true. And it has authority for our lives. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God has actually spoken to us and that we have a, a record, we have God speaking to us in this book? He speaks to us through the Scriptures. I think if you and I believe that, it changes everything about the way we follow Jesus. If we really believe that God has spoken to us, that we have a true and authoritative word. Look, there's lots of stuff that's debated today in culture. Is life valuable? In the womb and out of the womb, is it valuable? Right now, different states are answering that question differently. There's a debate going on. This book has something to say about it. And if it has something to say about it, it's true and it has authority. Is marriage up for grabs and definable by our whims? Yes or no? Right? That's a debate. People are discussing that, wrestling with it. This book is spoken. There's a true message and a message with authority. We spend a lot of time talking about your truth and my truth, right? Is truth just something that we can flip a coin on and we can go with what you think today and we'll go with what I think tomorrow? You take it one way, I'll take it another. Is that what truth is? This book has spoken about that. When we gather together as a church, are we free to do whatever we want to do or is there some sort of guidance and restriction about what the body of Christ does when it gathers together in worship. If, the, if God hasn't spoken, we can do whatever we want. We can wing it and make it up on the fly. But if God has spoken, 
There's something that's true and there's something that has authority. Look, all these things that are debated today really come down to this question. Do you believe God has spoken? Yes or no? And you can be embarrassed by what he said in this word or you can just recognize the fact that he said it. And it's true and it has authority for our lives. A lot of these debates get solved and become very clear when we just stop and remind ourselves God has spoken to us. The creator of the universe has stooped down and he has given us something that's true and something that has authority. And there are days coming for the church in the United States of America where we're going to have to wrestle with that issue real hard. Where it's going to really come down to, are you going to be so countercultural that people will demonize you and vilify you and hate you and say terrible things about you because you refuse to budge from what this word says? You're going to need to know that if you're going to endure as a follower of Jesus. If you're not going to fade away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And the book of Hebrews is saying, look, you have a prophet, somebody who has spoken for God. And he's spoken for God. His message is true and it has authority. Last thought. Jesus must not be an add-on to our lives. Instead, Jesus must be central to our lives. Cannot be an add-on. He's got to be central. It's the idea that he's the king, that he's on this throne, verse 8, that he has a scepter, that he loves righteousness, he hates wickedness. He's been anointed to sit on this throne above all his companions. Jesus ought to be central to everything that we do, everything that we are, everything that we think. I don't have to tell you that Americans are funny people. And you know we're funny people by watching uh, television and in particular, the commercials that run in between television shows. I was watching television this week, and back-to-back commercials. One said, you now have the opportunity to order Taco Bell from your phone on the couch, and it will be delivered directly to your door. Right? All the tacos you can eat, you just push a button on the app. You just wait patiently. It shows up. I'm not a big fan of Taco Bell. I definitely don't want it 20 months or 20 minutes later delivered to my house. But you can do that if you want to do that. Taco Bell delivered right to your door off the phone. You don't even get off the couch except to answer the door. Very next commercial. We have a new diet program for you. <laughs> You're going to love it. And you just take this pill and you just do this thing and you order the stuff from us and it's super, super easy. It's going to give you the body you always wanted and you're going to be fit and everybody's going to love you and you're going to be the greatest. Like Maybe there's a relationship there between those two things. But those two commercials are sort of illustrative of the fact that as Americans, as Americans, just speaking broadly, we don't really want to change things on a fundamental level. We just kind of want to tweak things a little bit to make it better for us. We don't want to actually change the way we diet and eat and exercise and approach health and all those sorts of things. We want an app on our phone that gets Taco Bell delivered right to our door. And what we want is an add-on that just makes it all better, right? We want a little supplement that just makes it all easier. We want something that's a quick fix. And can I suggest to you that that's how most Americans approach approach Jesus. I mean, we live in the Bible Belt. Jesus is still popular to some degree, to one degree or another. People aren't really openly hostile to Jesus. But what many people want is like a Jesus add-on. 
a Jesus supplement. What a lot of people are interested in is sort of, what is the minimum investment I need to make in Jesus in order to get the maximum return on that investment? Like, I don't want to miss heaven, so I want that. And I'd like things to go well for me until I get to heaven. So what is the minimum that I need to do on this side to just sort of add this on to the rest of my life without any major overhaul or change so that I reap the maximum benefit? And I think when the book of Hebrews describes Jesus, it's not giving us that as an option. There's no option to say, here's how you give the minimum required so that you get the maximum benefit on the other end. I think the book of Hebrews sort of looks at this as a package deal. And I think that's one of the beauties of recognizing Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah. This is not, he's the prophet, priest, king. You can have him as the priest and leave him out as the king, and you don't have to listen to him as the prophet. This is a package deal. right? You get all of him or you get none of him. The prophet and the priest and the king. And I think when you come to Jesus that way and you humble yourself before Jesus that way and you say, you know what? You're the king. You're going to rule my life. And you're the one who has truth and I'm just going to be quiet and listen. And you're the one who offered a sacrifice for my sins. I, I can't save myself. You saved me. When you say that, you're not going to fall away. You're not going to drift away. You're going to endure. You're going to hear this word of exhortation and you're going to endure. But I'm just telling you, when you approach Jesus as sort of a, I'll have some of this and pass on that, or you approach Jesus as, you know, I just strip all the doctrine and the stuff, I just, can we just talk about Jesus? That's the person who's going to fade away, the person who's going to fall away, the person who's going to drift away. And that means you and I have to just wrestle. Hebrews chapter 1, week 1 of the summer. Who do we believe Jesus is? Well, we listen to the scriptures when it describes him as the revelation of God, the creator, the sustainer, the savior, greater than the angels, worthy of worship, the ruler, sovereign over all, the one who's perfectly righteous and the one who's eternal, our prophet, our priest, and our king. Will we buy into that Jesus? Or are we just looking for a quick fix? Are we looking for a supplement? Are we looking for an easy add-on that will just make this or that better. And Hebrews 1 is just laying it on the table. You've got a decision to make. Which Jesus are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the true Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, the one we've talked about this morning, or are you going to sort of make up your own version? And the call of Hebrews 1 is to say, embrace him. All that he is, all that he offers, all that he commands of you. Embrace Jesus as your prophet, your priest, and your king.